The following sermon was delivered by Pastor Frank Griffith in the Sunday morning service at Calvary Community Church in Brentwood, California. You'll find more information at calvarytruth.org. There's been something that is one of my favorite truths that I learned in 1985, found here in Colossians chapter 1, verses 9 through 14. The reason I remember when I learned it is I uh, had bought a new car in 1984. Some of you don't even know what 1984 is, do you? 1984, and it was uh, Crown Victoria, and I was teaching a class uh, at Valley Bible Church at this campus of a school that we rented the entire school, and so I was in this classroom off in the dark, and there was no lighting out there, and so we'd go in, it was light, but when we came out, it was dark, and I had this brand new car, and I backed out and I didn't see this post and I backed right into this post with my front fender put a big dent in it and uh, I remember it was then that I had learned <laughs> this truth from Colossians chapter 1 about how the Bible changes the Christian's life because I never understood it I w- as I grew up in the Christian faith I thought that the way you grew was you had these powerful experiences where the spirit would come upon you and shake you and change you Well, I had a few of those experiences, but it didn't change me. It it certainly did startle me, but it didn't change me. I kept being pretty much the same person I had been. And as I was studying the book of Colossians, I ran into these six verses, and they literally turned me upside down. I came to understand how God uses the Bible in our lives and, uh, and why it is that he has given us his word as a gift. All of us are familiar with the, with the verses in the New Testament that speak about the power of the Word of God. I say all of us, well, most of us remember those. Like 2 Timothy 3.16, all Scripture is God-breathed and profitable for teaching, that is doctrine, what we should believe. Reproof, telling us when we're wrong. And some of you think, I don't need anybody to do that. I have a guy in my life that tells me when I'm wrong about everything. Uh, or a gal. But he says it was profitable for teaching, for reproof, telling you when you're wrong, correction, telling you how to get right, and instruction in righteousness, telling you how to live righteously in this life in a way that not only pleases God, but causes you to enjoy God in a deep and profound way. And then Hebrews 4, verse 12 says, the word of God is alive and powerful, sharper than a two-edged sword, piercing to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit, bone and marrow. What's significant about those, those two things, uh, those two, two couplets there, speak about things that we don't know how to distinguish between them, soul and spirit, bone and marrow. But he says the word of God, it cuts like a knife into our heart and opens us up. And he says, and it pierces to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit, bone and marrow, and causes us, teaches us how to, dis, to how to, It judges the, I'm sorry, I misquoted it. It judges the thoughts and intentions of the heart and lays us bare before him to whom we must give an account, which is God. In other words, God uses his word in a powerful way in the life of the believer. But we need to know, understand how he does that so that we can apply ourselves and apply it to our life. You know, there's almost, there's over 1,100 chapters in the Bible So if you read a chapter a day, you're not going to get close to finishing the Bible. But I don't think that's the goal. It's great to read through the Bible in one year. Read about four chapters a day, you can get through the Bible in a year. But that's not really the goal. The goal is having the Bible read your heart. 
It's having the word of God to impact your heart in such a way that it produces real lasting change. So listen to these verses. This is Colossians chapter 1, beginning in verse 9. Let me just tell you a little bit about the background of Colossae, of Colossians. Uh, Colossae was a city close to Ephesus. And while Paul was in Ephesus teaching for several years, and a lot of people came to faith in Christ, this is what we think happened. That one of the men who was impacted the greatest by his work went back to his home city, Colossae, and preached the gospel there to people. And guess what happened? A bunch of people got saved. And in the, in the New Testament, in the book of Acts, the way churches are planted is not that some team goes out and lives somewhere and starts meeting together and trying to get people out of churches where they're unhappy. That's a modern, that's a modern approach. Now, what happened was they preached the gospel, and whoever came to faith in Christ was a part of this fellowship. And what Paul would do is he's passing through preaching the gospel— People get saved, he would go on, and then he would come back through, and he would appoint elders. Guess where he got the elders? From these converts. None of them had gone to seminary. None of them had formal training. Now, it's true that most of them were Jews because the gospel in, in, in the first travels of Paul were, was preached primarily in the synagogues. And so these Jewish people gathered together to worship the God of Israel. But what they heard from Paul was the gospel of Jesus Christ. And pretty soon they're kicked out of the synagogue. And so what, what happened at Colossae, a church formed. And then sometime later, the people in that church... Even though they had never met Paul, they knew that Paul was under house arrest in Rome in a difficult situation. And so they sent their pastor to go and be a servant to him. That's, that's unique, isn't it? They sent him to go and serve him like a slave any way that he needed him to. And that's what Epaphras did. And so Epaphras tells Paul all about this church and all about these people and what had happened to them and how they had come to faith in Christ. And so as Paul writes this letter, he speaks to the issues that Epaphras told him about. There were some teachers that came into that church who were trying to turn them away from the Christ alone gospel and to turn them towards a religious system, telling them that they needed to be careful about, uh, they, they actually told them you have to learn how to severely treat your body. You don't eat certain things, you don't taste certain things, you don't handle certain things. It was very legalistic. And so Paul writes to the Colossians because he wants to clarify the gospel to them. And so this is what he says, beginning in verse 9. He says, for this reason, that is the reason of being informed about their conversion. He says, for this reason also, since the day we heard of it, we have not ceased to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so that you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord to please him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work, increasing in the knowledge of God being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for the attaining of all steadfastness and patience, joyously giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. For he rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So Paul's concern for them is he wants them to understand how God uses his word to change their lives. And it's a glorious truth. 
It's a wonderful reality that he unveils to us here. And so this is, uh, he's going to do two things, actually. He's going to tell them, this is your responsibility as believers. This is how you must approach the word of God. And then he's going to say, this is what God will produce in your life. A life of fruitfulness, a life of joy, a life of growth, a life where you can be used by God in a significant way. So we want to take a look at this passage. First of all, how does the Bible change the Christian's life is the whole theme of it. And he does two things. First, he says, uh, he shows us how to live the life that's driven by delight in God. In verses 9 and 10, it's an unusual expression. He says, for this reason, since the day we heard of it, we have not ceased to pray for you and ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. That expression is clearly speaking about the impact of the Bible on your life, but, but it isn't simply knowing a bunch of facts. It's having your heart impacted by the God who is revealed in the Scripture to be filled with the knowledge of His will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding so that you may walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, to please Him in all respects. So notice, uh, first of all, there's three things that we have to be doing. The, first, the very first thing is this. We have to drink deeply from this spring. I, I've mentioned before, this is one of, the, in the, one of John Piper's early books. He said, God is a mountain spring, and he wants you to drink from him. He's not a watering trough. He doesn't want you to carry water to fill up the trough. He wants you to receive from him. He wants you to realize that what he, what he, the, in your relationship with him, he is the giver and we are receivers. He doesn't need you. He loves you. And he pours himself out for you. It's kind of like what Jesus said in John seven thirty seven when he said, if anyone's thirsty, let him come to me and drink. And then he explains what he means by drinking from him. He says, whoever is trusting me, believing in me, out of his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. In other words, he'll be filled to the full and overflowing into other people's lives. So what Paul tells them is that they need to be drinking deeply from the spring, this, this re, who is God himself. In fact, this expression, filled with the knowledge of his will, what does that mean? Well, the word filled is used over and over by Paul. It's translated in one place, I think it's helpful to us, in Philippians 4.18, it's translated amply supplied. In other words, you have all you need of something. Sometimes you'll ask somebody, I'm going to the store. Do you need anything? No, I don't need anything. I've got everything I need. Of course, if you're going to Walmart, maybe there's nothing there that you need. (laughs) Although they have everything, right? So being amply supplied means that God has given you everything you need. In fact, we're told that in several places in the New Testament. That God's given us promises so that we might have everything we need for life and godliness. That is, to live a life before God in which we enjoy our fellowship and our relationship with him, and we grow in that. So, first of all, he says, drink deeply from this spring. Now, what does it mean to be filled? Well, it means to be amply supplied, and it has the idea of being well-rounded in your understanding and knowledge of God. You actually know who he is. You know, uh, and the word um, uh, filled with the knowledge of his will, the word will here means pleasure. It means desire. 
It's the word Thelema, and if you have a friend who's named Thelma, her name means desire. It was like her parents. This is exactly what their parents, her parents desired, was a girl like this, and so they named her Thelma. Oh, they probably didn't know that, but that's what the name means. Thelema means God's desires. Well, let me tell you what desires reveal about a person. What, a, what desires reveal about a person is their nature. God's desires reveal his nature. You want to get to know God? You get to know what he has revealed about his own desires. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 4 says something that's always messing up some people's theology. You know what it says? God desires what? All men to be saved and come to an acknowledgement of the truth. This is an amazing God that loves his enemies. And that's one of his desires. And throughout the scripture, we have God unveiling to us where his heart really is. That he desires you to know him. He desires you to have the kind of relationship with him where you realize you have freedom of access, which means you can talk to him at any time, you can approach him at any time, and you have freedom of speech. You can bear your heart to him. And the only way you're going to do that is through the Word of God, because the Word of God is where it reveals to us what he's like. I want to tell you, I, have, I believe that the Bible is God-breathed, which means created by God, and it's the exact revelation that he wanted us to have. When somebody comes to me and says, the Lord spoke to me and wanted me to tell you this, I take that with a grain of sand, I'm tell you why. It's because he's given me this word. And I, have, I only know a little bit of, of this, what he's revealed about himself in this book. But there's something else is that I have to be filled with it, which means I have to be impacted by it. I have to come to know who he is and understand who he is until it actually reaches my affections, my heart. I don't know if you've noticed it, but there's kind of a, a theme that runs through so many songs we sing about us talking to our soul. Praise the Lord, O oh my soul. That's a person telling his soul to praise God. Why do we tell our souls to do that? Our souls, the soul of man is, is what he was called when God created him. If you remember, God, it says God breathed into his nostrils the breath of lives, and he became a living soul. Or let's say 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 8 and 9, where Peter says, even though you, the people he's writing to, have never seen him, you love him. And though you're not seeing him now, but believing in him, you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. As you are receiving the end of your faith, the salvation of your souls. How is God saving your soul? How is God renewing your soul? By you coming to believe and love Jesus Christ. Now your soul is that part of you it's looking at your inner life in a, in a certain perspective. It's how you, it's, it's the fact that we feel life. You know, the Bible, the Bible teaches that God has emotions. In fact, it even talks about God's soul being vexed or God's soul being delighted. God feels life and he creates us in his image and we feel life. And so when we experience the depths of joy 
or even anger, our soul is functioning. And if you've noticed, every person you meet is a living soul. It's rare that you meet somebody who has no kind of response to life, who never feels anything about life. Uh, And I've quoted uh, Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, when it says that the Word of God lays us bare before him to whom we must give an account. It judges the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Our thoughts are just, it's just referring to how we're thinking. But our intentions are what we intend to do. And you know what? You cannot hide your thoughts and intentions when you come to the Word of God. When you get in the Word of God, it actually reveals to you the true nature of your thoughts and intentions. And sometimes we come under conviction about it, don't we? And we repent of certain thoughts and intentions because we know we're not thinking according to truth, but we're thinking according to an old thought pattern that we used to have before we came to know Christ. And so it judges us. And I want, you, I want to say to you, it's okay. It's one of the best things that can happen to you when the Word of God actually judges your thoughts and intentions and lets you see the truth about the patterns of your thought life and the intentions that you have, how you plan on living your life and what you plan on doing. The Word of God supplies for you a true evaluation of those things. And so when, when Paul tells them, I pray that you would be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, he wants you to come to the revelation that's been given to us in the word of God, of God himself. And to be so impacted by this vision of God that's given to you, that it affects you deeply. Then the second thing he says we have to do is we have to see the real-life implications of who we discover God to be. What I mean by that is, have you ever said to anybody when they said, why are you doing that? And you said, oh, because this is what God is like. And I'm responding to my God. That's why I do this. I doubt if any of us have ever said that to anybody, but that's really what's, what Paul is praying for. That as we see God revealed in his word, our hearts would be impacted and we would see the implications of how we should live in light of who God is. It's what every parent wants for their children, isn't it? Sometimes we get so upset with our children because it seems like what they're doing is in direct contradiction to who we are. And we say things to them like, hey, don't forget who you are. Don't shame your family, those kind of things, which doesn't work, by the way. But the point is, is that what God wants us to do is to see him as he is revealed in his word and that truth to sink deeply into our hearts. Tim Keller, who's a pastor in New York City, taught a class with a a teacher I had on preaching. And he said this, one one of the one tiny little statement out of all the statements he said was this. When you preach the word of God, you haven't finished the job until the message touched the affections of the hearers. Until they get such a clear picture of who this God is, that it actually impacts their heart and their soul. Now, this, when he says that 
we have to see the real life, real life implication of who God really is, is wisdom means the ability to apply this knowledge to all of life. How do I apply this knowledge I have of God? I, uh, I've been teaching a class called Theology Proper for, since 19... I think the first time I taught it was 1976, Great School of Theology. And uh, this was at Valley Bible Church. We were in a little, little place smaller than this, and it was called Holy Ghost Hall. It was a Catholic association, a Portuguese association. That was where we met for church. But we ended up buying this building. And then Mitch Peterson took a space in the back, which wasn't even paved. It, had no, it was just dirt. And he put a room there for Grace School of Theology. And we had class back there. And uh, our class was usually on Tuesday night. I still remember one Tuesday night. This was, had to be in the late 70s. Isn't it great to know somebody that can remember the 70s? <laughs> and we're back there. And I'm teaching on the attributes of God. God's, God's attributes. There are seven attributes of God. In the realm of his thinking, he's omniscient. In the realm of his will, he's omnipotent. And then in the realm of his character, his emotions, his sensibilities, he is holy, righteous, good, truth, and love. And I was teaching this. I taught it over. I've taught this over and over and over again. But that one class I remember so distinctly because we were all so moved by this picture of who God is, that he's a God who's perfectly righteous and holy and perfectly full of love and truth and goodness. That we, when the class was over, we all got on our knees and began to worship him. And it was wonderful listening to these guys express thanksgiving and hallelujahs to God for who he was and what he had done for them. And there was a guy there from Vallejo. Um, this guy was about 6'5", a black guy, had an incredible voice, and he started singing in his baritone voice, How Great Thou Art. And it was like, it was like being transported into the third heaven. We all just sat there stunned. You see, what had happened was we had been exposed to some truth, some knowledge about God, but what it did was it affected our hearts, it affected our emotions. And so then the response, it wasn't just stirring people up, it was coming to understand something about God that touched the heart. And in response, we began to worship God. And so Paul says, I want you to see the real life implications of who this God is. How should you worship him? You know, the, the book of Psalms is a worship book. It's a hymnal for the people of God in the Old Testament. And so we read these things sometimes and we're listening and they go, okay, what is that supposed to do? Well, if you understood the context, if you understand the context, you understand the people of God expressing their understanding of who this God is, which is nothing close to what you have come to be exposed to as believers in Jesus Christ. You have come to know your father in a way that they didn't even know. That's why the Jews got mad at Jesus because he said he called God my father. Well, you say that all the time. Maybe you say our father, but sometimes you even say, oh, father, thank you. What's, it, what's happened? We have come to understand God in a deeply profound way through his word, that he is our father. 
And so he says, I want you to be filled with this in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Well, it's wisdom because there's a way to apply the truth of who God is to your daily life. It's understanding because that has to do with how do I apply it in this situation? You know, when you're talking to somebody who's going through a trial or trouble or a great challenge, how are you going to apply what you know about God to their life and their situation? That's understanding. That's what this word means. And so Paul wants them to come to have that kind of, not just a knowledge of God, but a wisdom and understanding. And then he says, I want you to respond in obedience, in awe and obedience in verse 10, so that you may walk in a manner worthy of the Lord to please him in all respects. Let me show you what worthy of the Lord means. Worthy of the Lord, the word worthy means of equal worth or reflects the same weight of something. It's, it's an expression, it's actually the word oxios, or oxios, and it's, we get a word axis from it, and it's talking about that beam up on top. So it meant to bring up the beam. When you put a weight on one side and a weight on the other, they should, if they're the same weight, they're going to bring the beam to level. He said, your life, now get this, your life, the way you live your life in response to God, ought to reflect the heaviness of God, the glory of God. People ought to be able to look at our lives and say, wow, what a God he serves, she serves. Maybe they think they serve. So my lifestyle in response to the implications of who God is should reflect the reality of who God is. Paul warns some women in Titus uh, to live in such a way that people would not blaspheme God by observing their life as believers. What he means is that they wouldn't believe lies about God because of the way that these women were living. Now, the same thing is true of Christian men, too. We face the same challenge. But I want to to show you something. There's a paper that you ought to read. It's called Never Read the Bible Just to Know. It's by John Piper. It's on his website. His website is desiringgod.org desiringgod.org, and he's got a, if you do a search on there for this article, it's one page, both sides, you can read this, it is so profound, and it's this, you don't read the Bible just to know the facts, you read the Bible so that the knowledge of the truth of who God is will touch your heart, and it will fill your heart with an affection for God and an awe of God that will control your life. Uh, He says in this article, there are two great dangers, emotionalism and intellectualism. Intellectualism, well, let me just read his words. It's good. It's real clear. Intellectualism stresses the use of the intellect and its discoveries without the corresponding awakening of the emotions that those discoveries are meant to kindle. God wants you to know that he's holy and righteous and good and love and truth and omnipotent and omniscient so that it will affect your heart. Not just so you'll be smart. It isn't just the facts. It's that the facts will cause you to praise and worship and exalt God. The other side, the other danger, emotionalism, stresses the energetic stirring of the emotions that are untethered, that is cut free from the truth that is their warrant or the basis. In other words, If all we do is stir people up, let's get everybody excited. Let's get everybody happy. Let's sing some songs that really produce deep emotions in us. The problem is, if the truth of who God is doesn't 
penetrate the heart, those emotions are just emotionalism, and they won't last. They won't change your life. They won't change the way that you live your life in fellowship with God. So what we need is we need the truth to sink deep into our hearts. We need to embrace the truth, and then the truth will will produce certain emotional responses. I'm kind of an emotional. When I, if I get emotional, I can hardly talk. And so I'm really careful. I never want to get emotional around people. Something makes me, I'll cry at a drop of a hat when I'm watching TV on the news. And here comes a soldier who's been away from his family for four years and shows up at school and uh, appears to his kids. And the kids are just awestruck and they run and jump in his arms. I always get emotional about that. But that's just emotionalism. We could stir people up with all kinds of things, but that's not the goal. The goal is for our hearts to embrace the truth of who God is, and it, and it touches our affections, and we feel the truth because it's so glorious that God desires all men to be saved. That means all women too, by the way. You know, every person you meet who's not in the family of God, God wants them to come to the knowledge of the truth and to be saved. You believe that? And so what happens is the test to me is when I'm talking to someone and I'm blithely moving along and not taking the occasion, not taking the opportunity to share Christ, is that I don't love them the way God does because they desperately need to know this living Christ in order to have their heart made whole and their soul saved, set free. The second thing he talks about here is that the, the Bible shows us how we know we are experiencing this life. What, what, how will our life be described? What will it be characterized by? What Paul does, he uses four action words. They're, they're called present participles. If some of you remember grammar from grammar school, he uses four participles. To, they're like videotapes. This is what a, a Christian is like when he's living in response, when he's being filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding and responding in obedience to the implications of who God is. And he, he has four of them. And here's what they are. This is, this is God's part of all this. The first thing is our life will be characterized by fruitfulness, fruitfulness, bearing fruit in every good work. Now, you get what's going on here. You know, those of you who are familiar with the Bible, you know that the fruit of the Spirit is character, right? The Spirit producing character in us. That's the fruit of the Spirit. But he also mentions the work. So he, he says we are to bear fruit in every good work, both the inward character and the outward activity of what we're doing should God will produce change. You mean a person comes to faith in Christ, their, their life actually changed, changes? Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. If a person comes to faith in Christ, their life will change. And they will begin to live a life that's characterized by these four things. Fruitfulness. Secondly, growing intimacy with the Father. Now, he's just said, I want you to be filled with the knowledge of God's will. Now, he says, uh, you will be growing in your intimacy with the Father. You'll come to know him more and more, increasing in the knowledge of God. 
The knowledge of God here is speaking about personal knowledge, a personal relational knowledge. You'll know him like a father. He's the first one you will speak to in life and in the situations of life. And then the third thing is power to meet everyday situations. You know, like the stuff you're going through now. Being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for the attaining of all steadfastness and patience. Let me explain these two words to you. Steadfastness and patience. These are wonderful. The word steadfastness means abiding under pressure in hard situations and continuing to love God, acknowledge God, worship God, trust God under hard circumstances. The word patience, makrathumia, uh, I only say that because it means keep your boiling point a long ways off with people. It's talking about living in relationship to difficult people. And you, you can expect, if you ever get involved in a local church, that's what we are, if you ever get involved in a local church, you're going to discover that you need to love one another fervently from the heart because love covers a multitude of sins. And so when he says patience, he's talking about keeping your boiling point a long ways off as you, as you live life with people who are hard to get along with. Difficult. So it speaks of faithfulness in the midst of bad relationships. It's the opposite of bitterness and anger. And then finally, joyous gratitude to the Father. He says this in, in verses 13 14. He says, joyously giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. For he rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption. Redemption is what Jesus did for you. Redemption is Jesus paying the ransom price to set you free from sin and judgment and condemnation. Darkness, he's rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins, set free from sin. Set free from sin. Not just set free from the coming day of judgment, But he wants us to experience what it's like to live in relationship to God, and God will produce in us a freedom from the oppressiveness of sin in our lives. You know, we want to emphasize grace. We're saved by grace through faith. We're saved by the grace of God. It's a gift. We don't earn it. It's not through our works. But we don't want you to ever think that God is satisfied to keep you in limbo your whole Christian life so that you can fail and fail and fail and fail and fail. And you can say, I'm a sinner saved by grace, and I continue to sin every day. No, he wants to set you free from that. Sin is bondage. Read Romans chapter 6. Sin is a severe bondage that holds you as a slave. But Christ gave his life to set you free from that bondage, that you would be free And so he says we should be giving thanks for this. The first chapter of the Gospel of John, John writes, In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it, is the way it's translated. The word comprehend means it couldn't squelch it. It couldn't abscond with it and remove it. What God has brought you into, he wants you to enjoy a life of fellowship with him.
a life of fellowship with the living God that you're so impressed with that you can hardly speak his name without it affecting you. That's what he wants. He wants you to come to know him in that way, that it touches you deeply. Now, he says we should, he mentions four things that we are continually giving thanks for. I'm going to go ahead and show those to you. The first one is the inheritance for which the Father qualified us. What's your inheritance? You remember the, the prodigal son? And he'd go into his father and said, I want my inheritance now. Well, he was the younger son, so the father gave him 30% of the inheritance. That's what he would get as the a, as a youngest son. And he goes off and squanders it all. Remember, he comes back, and then the older son, who got two-thirds at the same time, he got two-thirds of, his inherit- of the, the entire inheritance, and he lived in the abundance of it. But he was angry because the father squandered some of that inheritance by offering up a sacrifice for his younger son. Now, what Jesus is doing is showing them, these Pharisees, how small-minded they are. That the reason that God is saving people that they don't approve of is because of his father's heart. And we don't have to worry about the inheritance being lost. In fact, if, you, if somebody was to ask you, what, what do you think your inheritance is? Well, let me quote you first. This is 1 Corinthians three twenty-two and 23. All things belong to you. That's what he says your inheritance is. We are heirs of God and joint heirs with Jesus Christ. And so Paul says, all things are yours. They belong to you. And you belong to Christ, and Christ belongs to God. Hey, wait a minute. If everything belongs to me, could I, have your, could I drive your car home then? No. But everything is yours. That's not prosperity gospel. That's the goodness of a God who says, whatever you need, I will supply. There's never going to be a moment in your life where you cannot trust the living God to supply your needs. Now, there's times when he stretches you and where you have to come to the place where you feel yourself being feeling so desperate that you turn to God like a desperate person turns to God. And that's exactly what he wants. He wants your heart to be turned to him. So we're to be thanking him for the inheritance for which the Father has qualified us. Secondly, the deliverance from the satanic realm. He took us out of the domain of darkness. That's the domain of Satan. The deadly effect of sin. And the horror of the fact that we were headed for a day of judgment. It's hard to talk about judgment, isn't it, to people? You mean you believe that there's a day of judgment? I only believe it because the Bible says it. And so I know it's true. There's a day of judgment coming. And when you were justified as a believer, that judgment had fallen on Jesus Christ, and God says, I declare you to be righteous and right with me. There's no judgment ahead for you because Christ has paid the penalty for your sin. And then he says, give thanks for our transference into the kingdom of, of his beloved son. This is where we live now. We live in the kingdom of his son. And everything works differently in the kingdom of his son than it does at Brentwood, California, or Knights in California. And then finally, the redemption we have in Christ, which, was, which resulted in the forgiveness of sins. Wow, isn't it great to be forgiven? It's, it's just the most amazing thing. I had asked my wife to forgive me yesterday. I was smart enough to her, just kidding, but it did sound pretty bad. And I finally asked her to forgive me. 
and she forgave me. And we get to do that. It's wonderful, isn't it? How many of you husbands enjoy the fact that your wife can forgive you? There's four of you. Wow. (laughs) The rest of you are in bad shape. Um, It's wonderful to be forgiven, isn't it? And I, I won't ask that of the wives, but the same thing is true the other way, isn't it? Well, guess what? We, we are the forgiven. That's who we are. We are the forgiven. This is a fellowship of the forgiven. And in fact, we're called to forgive one another. And then finally, we are to give thanks for the redemption we have in Christ, which resulted in this forgiveness, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And then the bottom line of all this is simply this. This is the whole point. This is what I learned from this passage and taking it seriously. And that is that there is a deepening your intimacy with God through the Bible leads to a joyful relationship with the Father that will last for eternity and it will change you from the inside out. It's incredible. I get a kick out of uh, when somebody goes on a diet and it works and they start losing weight and how excited they are and you think it's the greatest thing in all of life. This diet is the greatest thing in all of life. Why? Because the greatest thing in all of life for, for, for me was to lose 20 pounds or 50 pounds or 100 pounds. Now, that's not the greatest thing. The greatest thing in all of life is that you have a Father in heaven who is the God who created everything, who is omnipotent and omniscient and holy and righteous and good and truth and love and yet he's your father and he wants you to know him he wants you to know him isn't that amazing when I was a kid I used to ride to work with my dad and uh, he was just this way we'd be riding along and he's talking to me and then when I started talking to him I wouldn't notice it for a while but he wasn't even listening to me because he had some other things on his mind well one of the most wonderful a part of that relationship with he would let me know from time to time that he really wanted me to know him. That there were things in his life that he was ashamed of, but he wanted me to know who he really was. And our, our Father in heaven wants you to know who he is. But I want to warn you of something. As you grow in your understanding of who he is, it's going to affect your soul, it's going to affect your heart. It's going to cause you to have deep, profound emotions about this God. In fact, you might even sometimes, you know, like I read this morning from Psalm 95 and said about shouting for glory. You might even find yourself alone somewhere on vacation in some room where nobody else can hear you. And you just begin to praise God and raise your hands and act like this stuff is really real. But that's okay, isn't it? Because God made you as a worshiper and he saved you so that you can fulfill that purpose. And there's nothing that will fill your life with joy like that. But don't shortchange this glorious reality of coming to know the truth about God and then be affected by it in your, in your heart and spirit. But instead, come to know the truth of who he is through his word. Get in his word. Understand his word. Let it sink deep into your heart who this is, this glorious God. There's, there's thousands of good books. I own about 8,000 books. And, and some of them are really good. 
but there ain't nothing like the Bible. There is nothing sold on the market today that reveals who God is like the Bible does. Because this is God-breathed, and it's alive, and it's powerful, and it's penetrating. So get in the Word. Start today to experience this. There's nothing like this. Nothing like coming to the Word of God and God opening your eyes and opening your heart, and it actually produces profound, deep affections for God. I was, uh, I was studying one morning uh, over in oh, Rodeo. We were, our facility, we were meeting in a school like this, but we had the whole school all the time, and I was in my office waiting for some guys to come. We were going to pray together, and I was just reading, getting prepared. I was going to teach a, class, a Sunday school class, and I was sitting there uh, reading and thinking about these truths, about the grace of God, and I began to be so overwhelmed with joy and what God had done for us that I began to weep. And I, was, I thought I had plenty of time to get myself straightened out before they got there. <laughs> but when they came, I couldn't get one word out. They would say something to me, and I would try to answer, and I'd just break down. And they thought something horrible had happened. Maybe my wife died or something. And I said, no, 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 no. I just can't get over this. Can you? Can you get over what he's done for you? Isn't it amazing? And the, the wonderful thing is, in Romans chapter 5, it says trials actually enhance this understanding rather than diminish it. You would think that people going through trials would, would kind of begin to get angry at God. But instead, they flee to him and they found, find him to be everything they need. All that God is for us in Jesus Christ, he wants you to know and understand. I'm almost tempted to say all of you who are in a trial and find that you know God more intimately in the trial than you had before, stand up, but I'm not going to do that. Then Dewey would have to stand up. It'd be hard for him to get out of the chair. (laughs) And uh, God is so glorious. And I want this truth to be a proven reality in all of our lives. There's nothing like fellowship with believers. You know, when you go back and read Acts 2 and it talks about how the church acted how they were sitting under the teaching of the Word of God, then they would get together in their homes, and they, were, they continued in the apostles' doctrine. That is this revelation about who, God, who all that God is for us in Christ Jesus, and they couldn't stop talking about it, and they rejoiced in it, and they prayed together. Sometimes when we talk about these things, we have to stop and just give Him praise because He's so glorious. He is so glorious. And he's done you so good. He's a good, good father. Let's pray. Our Father, we're going to come to communion now, and I just pray that you would prepare our hearts for fellowship with you and for with one another. I pray that we would humble ourselves and believe these glorious truths and realities of who you have revealed yourself to be in Christ Jesus. We thank you so much for this truth and this reality in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. To respond to this message or learn more, please visit calvarytruth.org.